Acts chapter 14. I'm going, we're going to look at the whole chapter. I'm going to begin reading in verse 19 uh, to begin our time together. And we want to get a sense of Paul's first missionary journey. And as we get to the end of this chapter, we see the end of it. And, and I want to pick up as we go through just the theme of perseverance and what it looks like to persevere. And we see that in the Apostle Paul here in Acts chapter 14. On the screen, I think that just came up, is this first missionary journey. We talked a few weeks ago about how this began in Antioch. They sailed down to Cyprus, moved across that island. Now they, they've moved back up and they've ended up in a, a synagogue in Antioch. That's where we've gotten to so far. But if you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel in that city... And had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. And when they had appointed elders for them in every city with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Then they passed through Poseidon and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, and they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared how God, what God had done with them, and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Oh God, we here in this chapter, get a glimpse of your move across the world. We, 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 we see what it's like to, to plod for Jesus. And God, I pray today that you would give us graces. We, we've talked about so often today in the songs, in baptism, even as we've talked about giving. God, I pray that you would give us grace to see the joy that, that is before us in plodding in suffering, in sacrificing for Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. William Carey is known as the father of the modern missions movement. He lived from 1716 to 1834. William Carey is most noted for saying, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And we think about this man who did just that. He attempted great things for God. But when we study the life of William Carey, uh, when we look at the details of his life on a micro level, what we realize is this man who started the modern mission movement, what we know today as cross-cultural missions in other countries, the details of his life are marked more by intense obstacles rather than what we see today as the success that later came from his life. William Carey was born into poverty. 
He received a very poor education. At one time in his life, he was an apprentice shoemaker, but his reputation for that is that he wasn't very good at it. He wasn't a good shoemaker, and so that didn't end up well for him. When he was first called to preach, and he began preaching and seeking ordination, he failed, and he was rejected. The church wouldn't ordain him. And one of the reasons for that is they said he was a bad preacher. They said he couldn't preach. His sermons were tedious and boring. And so they rejected him as a preacher. Eventually, William Carey formed a missionary society. He was the first candidate for, uh, to be a missionary in another country, in India. And it took some time, but when he finally got to India... Him and his family, they sell to India. They are on the ground in this country for seven years. Seven years before anyone came to faith in Christ. Can you imagine laboring somewhere for seven years, preaching the gospel, not seeing one person believe and come to faith in Christ? During that time, his marriage was horrible. Uh, His wife... Literally, she she went insane and and she was depressed. One of his daughters died, which they say is what left him, the, the stress from that is what left him bald for the rest of his life. Eventually, he translated the Bible into Bengali and five other portions Uh, five other languages, and then other portions of the Bible into 29 different languages. However, at one stage in translating the Bible into other languages, there was a fire and he lost 10 years of his work and had to start all over. Can can you imagine the obstacles that this man has gone through? This man who today we look back and we see this great impact on his life. He started what we know as missions, the first missionary that we know today. Millions have been impacted by his life. Even in India, many would come to faith in Christ later. Churches would be formed. Uh, But even the society there, there was this practice of burning widows with their dead husband. And he was responsible for for ridding the country, outlawing that in India. And, And we see this major impact in the world from this man's life, but it is totally marked by obstacles, suffering. There's always setbacks. And we find a man who just had to persevere. And when someone came to him later in life and he was dying and they said, Mr. Carey, if we were going to write about you, what would we say? And he said, well, I'm going to tell you what to say about me. And we think about all of his success. We think about all of his uh, achievements. And he says, this is what you should write about me. If one should think it worth his while to write my life, I will give you the criteria by which you may judge its correctness. And he says, so if anyone ever writes about me, here's how you'll know it's true. If he gives me credit for being a plotter, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond this will be too much. I can plot. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. This I owe everything. He says, if you want to know who I am, what I'm about, I can plot. Meaning, I can just grind away. I can get it done. 
I don't give up. I persevere. I get up the next day and I do it again and I do it again. And I don't give up. I persevere. And when we think about William Carey and his impact in the world, that, isn't that the way most people who succeed at anything are? They can just plod. They get up and they do it again. When they're knocked down, when things don't go their way, when there's difficulty, when there's suffering, what do they do? They just put their nose to the grind and they plod and they plod and they keep after it. Any career here. We would say, that's what makes you successful. Just plod, just plod, just keep working at it. And that is what we see when we begin to dig into the life of the Apostle Paul. There is what we call around here in Paul's life, gospel grit. Meaning, we believe the gospel and we're just going to be gritty. We're going to get it done and we're going to work hard for Jesus and we're just going to keep on. We're, we're, going to, we're going to persevere because the gospel is true. And we see this example in the life of the Apostle Paul. We see it very clearly on his missionary journeys. The, the four times where Paul goes out to preach the gospel in other cultures. Paul and Barnabas are the first missionaries, meaning they are the first to go into areas where Jesus Christ has yet to be named. They go into heathen, pagan areas and name the name of Christ for the first time. And when we read about this in the end of the book of Acts, the second part of the book of Acts, a lot of it seems like Indiana Jones for Jesus. I mean, it is exciting. And who wouldn't want to go out and live on an island? Who wouldn't want to go out and be shipwrecked? I mean, <clears throat> if you're a single guy here, you would say, yeah, that's great. I, I, I want to do that before I get married. I want to go on one of those mission trips. That's awesome. Hiking mountains, going into areas where I can almost die for Jesus. Some of you are saying, yeah, that's great. But when we look at the scope of his life, when we back up from the synopsis, this was many, many, many years of just plotting. This wasn't a week-long mission trip to Hawaii. This was hard, and this was difficult. And so we've got to get this picture of the Apostle Paul as we begin to talk about his missionary movements, as his missionary journeys, as we dig into this. In Acts chapter 13 and 14, this was his first missionary journey with Barnabas. They're sent out from the church of Antioch. Uh, as we see on the map, or we saw on the map earlier, they begin to go into deep Gentile cultures. They, they, they tour what we, would be, what we would know as Asia Minor. And it took them on this first missionary journey three years. Three years of sailing. Three years of hiking. Three years of walking. Three years of riding donkeys. It was tiring. It was difficult. But here they are plotting for Jesus. And as we looked at the last couple of weeks, Paul found himself in another Antioch. They begin in Antioch over here, and then they end up in Antioch, Poseidon, in a synagogue, preaching to Jews. And many of these Jews believe the gospel. But notice verse 50 of chapter 30. As many believe the gospel, Gentiles and Jews are believing the gospel there in Antioch of Poseidon. And notice, but the Jews incited devout women of high standing 
And leading men of the city, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. And so all of a sudden we see a church is forming around this synagogue. Things are going well. But what happens? The Jews are jealous. They're drawing a bigger crowd. And so they go to these devout women of the city and they get the the gossip group text going among the women. And then these women turn to their husbands and they begin to tell them what to do. And before long, Paul and Barnabas are ready to be killed in the city. Now that's exactly how a lot of pastors lose their job these days. You get the deacon's wives talking, and then before long, they're on trial. Exactly what happened here in Antioch. Verse 51. Nobody thought that was funny. You've experienced that, I guess. Verse 51. But they shook off the dust from their feet, and they went to Iconium. Here, they face opposition in Antioch. What do they do? They shake the dust off their feet, and they move on. And the Disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So how do, they, how do they deal with the opposition? They shake the dust off their feet. It's exactly what Jesus told them to do when someone rejected their message. Shake the dust off your feet and move on. And it was a sign of judgment. And, and so what Paul and Barnabas are doing is they're saying, these Jews in the synagogue reject our message. Let's move on to somewhere else. But notice what happened in Antioch of Bethsaida. When they leave, there is joy of the Holy Spirit in the church. And we begin to see this theme in chapter chapter 14. There is opposition, and yet they keep plotting, and the church keeps growing. Here, in the face of opposition, there is joy, there's contentment. The the, the work of these devout women, the work of these Jews, it did not hinder the work of Jesus in this area. No, there is a church there forming. Verse 1 of chapter 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. And we would probably say, Paul, why do you keep doing this? This is like the third time you go to the synagogue. They don't want to hear your message. And yet Paul keeps going to the synagogue where there's theological context. They know that they know the story. They know what that they've heard the Old Testament scriptures. And now he brings Christ in, preaches Christ to the Jews. But notice what happens. He preached in such a way a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and notice. <clears throat> poisoned their minds, lied to them against the brothers. So again, Paul preaches the gospel, immediate opposition. Here in this area, they're lying to the people. They're telling them untruths. It's like one time we were in a village in the Andes Mountains of Peru, and we realized that there were nuns coming in behind us every time we would share the gospel with someone. And the nuns of the village, you think nuns, sweet ladies? No. They were telling people that the white people here will eat your kids. They are here to eat your kids. And we wondered the next day when we went back out into the village while the kids were just running away from us. And it's because they were lying to them. Same thing going on here. They are poisoning their minds. But notice what Paul does. Verse 3. So they remained there for a long time. We're going, what? 
Every time you face persecution, you just keep plotting. You just keep preaching the gospel. And here, these people are spreading rumors about you, lying about you. What, what should you do? You should just, no, we're going to stay here for a while. I kind of like this. And he just keeps preaching the gospel. Notice, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore, his wit who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And so what does the Spirit do? It begins to topple the lies of the people with the truth of the gospel. And so Paul just keeps plodding on. This place, Iconium, it would have been a place 90 miles south of Antioch where he had traveled across mountains. There would have been road pirates there. And now he has preached the gospel and people are lying about him. And so what does he do? You know, Paul at this point is probably facing burnout. I'm just ready to get back home. Oh, let's stay here a while. Isn't this great? And he keeps preaching the gospel. The response is to keep plotting. Verse 4, But the people of the city were divided, some with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. See the theme again? Here, we're going to stone you. We're going to kill you. And what do they do? They move along some 20 miles, then 60 miles to Derby. They're preaching the gospel along the way. And what, verse 7, they continued to preach the gospel. They continued to preach the gospel. If you're Paul and Barnabas, at some point you're looking at each other going, I'm tired of being going, going from city to city. I'm tired of people lying about me. I'm tired of these threats on my life. But what's the theme? Just keep plotting. Just keep preaching the gospel. Just keep moving with the gospel. And what we see here is a steady witness displays the power of the Spirit. A, a steady witness in our lives, even when things don't go our way, displays that even when we lose, we aren't, we aren't losing. <laughs> even when someone rejects the message... Even in this case, when someone, it, it, they outlash with physical persecution, lies about you, that you aren't losing. You can't lose. And so what do you do? You just keep preaching the gospel. And, and we have to understand that when we think about the mission of our life. We think about the fact that Jesus has set us apart for his plans and his purposes in the world. And what does it mean to win? Because we, we want to win. We want to be successful. We want to be powerful. What does that mean as a Christian? What does that mean as a church? What does it mean to be successful? Well, it means you keep plotting no matter what. You, you keep being faithful and preaching the gospel no matter what. There are going to be Easter Sunday, high attendance days where you leave and everything is great. And there were so many people here and all of your friends came. And then there's going to be the Sunday after spring break and people are gone and people are moving. And they're not here. And we're looking around, where's everybody at? What's the response? Well, you just keep preaching. You just keep plotting. You just keep ministering the gospel. And the same thing goes on in your life. You're going to have friends who believe. You're going to have friends who go through difficulty. And they're going to come to you and say, Hey, I need some help. And you're going to share the gospel with them. 
And they're going to believe the gospel and they're going to trust in Christ. But you're also going to have friends who go through difficulty, who don't want your help, who don't want to hear about Jesus, who have no, who have no interest in what you're talking about. And what do you do? You just keep preaching the gospel. Your friends are going to come to church with you some Sundays. Your family members are going to keep you hanging week after week after week. It, it, it's just a mixture of acceptance, a, a mixture of receptivity, a mixture of rejection. And yet you just keep plotting. Paul keeps preaching the gospel no matter what. And here he ends up in this town, Lystra, verse 8. Now this would have been raw heathenism. This is raw paganism. We, we only know of Timothy who came from this place, who, was a, who, who had some Jewish influence. But the gospel is moving into this indigenous area where there is no witness of the gospel. There is no religious context. Lystra would have been a, a, an outpost in the Gentile world. And if you want to think about what it was like, think about the wild, wild west. Think about pagan tombstones. This is where Paul and Barnabas end up and there is debauchery and there is superstition. There are these uneducated, barbaric, superstitious, pagan worshipers and they end up here preaching the gospel and as a sign that their message is true, they are able, Paul's able to heal a man who we see in verse 10. Jumps up at, when Paul says, stand up on your feet. He jumps up and he begins walking around. And if you remember Acts chapter 3, this is exactly what happened when Peter was preaching the gospel. There was a man who had not walked his whole life and he stands up and he dances around and people are amazed and they're looking on it. How did that happen? And here we begin to see a rerun. God is doing the same thing that he did in Jerusalem in this pagan city. The gospel is moving there. He is doing the same thing through the Apostle Paul that he did through Peter. But notice how the crowds respond. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconium, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now there was amazing revival in Lystra. People are, there is an outbreak of belief, right? But it's paganism, right? That they see Paul and they see Barnabas and they think they are gods from heaven. They look at Paul and say, you must be the God of speech. You must be Hermes, the one who created oratory. You are such a fantastic speaker. And they look at Barnabas and say, well, you must be Zeus. You, you are the head God. And they bring out these animals to offer sacrifices to them. Now, this is like an episode from Gilligan's Island. They, they end up in these pagan culture and they think they're going to be killed or sacrificed, and all of a sudden they are lifted up as gods, and it's so pagan that Paul and Barnabas don't even understand what's going on at first. They don't understand the language, and Paul was very educated. This is how pagan this is. They don't understand what's going on. And it seems to fit in the context of a story that the people of Lystra would have believed. 
That one time, Zeus and Hermes had had visited their village. And they had come down incognito. And there was only one couple who, who would show them hospitality. And they brought these gods into their home. And what had happened is that's how their temple was created. They made their home a temple and they flooded the rest of the people. And these two people survived. And so now the the high priest says, that ain't happening again. If this by chance is the gods, if this is Zeus and Hermes, then we're about to offer some sacrifice. We're about to have a tent revival to Zeus. Bring out the oxen. Bring out the sacrifices. And then Paul and Barnabas begin to understand what is going on. And they tear their garments in verse 14. And they begin to scream that somehow in this foreign language they would understand they are committing blasphemy. He looks to this superstitious people and says, Stop it! You don't understand what you're doing. Verse 15. Why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. Don't you understand we are created? Now, in their belief system, they so often attributed deity to men, their emperors, their rulers. They had the freedom to do this and just make men gods in settings like this where there was some sort of supernatural movement. He says, no, no, no. We are created beings. But we bring you good news that you can turn from these empty, vain things to a living God. The one who made heaven and earth and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. And yet, verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. See, we would get to the end and say, oh, Paul's preaching a sermon. Here he goes. It's going to be an outbreak of revival. It's going to be awesome. And it does nothing. (laughs) Paul stands up to these pagans and says, we're created just like you. By the way, we're created just like your emperors that you worship. We're created just like the idols that you create for yourself, the gods you create for yourself. And he says to them, it is useless to worship, worship a created thing. And he says to them, by the way, You know there is a God because you're created. You can walk out into the world and you understand you didn't put this here. You didn't put yourself here. You can't can't make water come from the sky into the ground to produce food for you. You can't do that. All of that from the beginning of time is a witness that there is a creator and that you are accountable to him. And yet, what are you doing? You're creating gods yourself. That's useless. That's vain. Your rocks can't save you. These men can't save you from your creator. And now you've turned to us and you're making us into gods. You can't create God. You must bow to him. And notice verse 19. So the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, now as Paul has moved through these cities, hundreds of miles, walking, hiking to this place in Lystra, 
Notice his reputation from this pagan place has gotten all the way back to Iconium, all the way back to Antioch. And notice they came down to this pagan city because they are so against Paul. They've walked hundreds of miles to do what? Oh, we've had a change of heart, Paul. We want to hear this message again. No, they, they, they came to Lystra and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. You see that? You, you see this heart of unbelief? Such rejection, such aggression against the gospel. We're going to follow you all the way down to this pagan place, Lystra, to these pagan heathens that we really don't even care about anyway, and we're going to stir them up against you to stone you. That's how bad we hate your message. And we're seeing here a rerun of Golgotha. Remember when Jesus first entered the city, what were they doing to him? Hosanna. Our King, our Lord has come. He's come in the likeness of men, just like they're doing in Lystra. Our King has come to save us. But how does the week end? They kill him. Why? Because he wasn't a God that fit in their box. He was a poor Nazarene. And then he ended up being a crucified Messiah. We don't need a crucified Messiah. And here, Paul and Barnabas, their witness of Jesus, doesn't fit into the box of the Jews in the synagogue. And now it doesn't fit into the box of these pagans. And what have they done to Paul? They have stoned him and they leave him outside of the city because his message, the message of his God, doesn't fit within their system. Now we read this and we think, well, that's barbaric paganism. But what it is, it's a vision of our own heart. When you see Jerusalem crucifying Jesus, when you see Lystra, Antioch, Iconium stoning Paul, what God is doing is saying, this is you. You are a pagan idolater no matter how you try to pretty it up from the outside in. Because just like these pagans, what do you do? You begin all the time looking at the world around you, starting with you. And you are constantly looking for idols and gods that will do what you want. And so often we are caught creating gods in our image. Instead of realizing I am created in God's image to worship Him, I am looking at the world trying to find a God to create in my image. And trying to find someone or something that will do everything that I want, that will give me everything that I need, that will provide me my kingdom. And when they don't give you what you want, you're angry and frustrated. You want to throw them away and destroy them. That's why we get so angry with people. Because so often we put expectations on them that they weren't meant to have. And we make them into gods. We do that with our kids. We create little idols that are in our image that are to betray this story of us in the world. And when they don't do what we want, they don't have the manners, they're not as successful as we, we want them to be, they don't act like we want them to be in public, what do we do? Ah! We're angry. Man, hopefully you don't do that in Walmart. I've probably done that before in Walmart. 
but, but what are you, you're angry because this little God in my image isn't giving me what I want. We do that with our spouse. We make them into idols to provide for us, and when they don't, we want to crush them, metaphorically. <laughs> Politicians who don't give you... We, ah! We, we erect gods on thrones, and we say... I will, I will worship you. I will, I, will, I will do whatever it takes if you'll just give me something in return. And many of us here today are guilty of making Jesus into an idol. You've made Jesus into a stone carved out to give you what you want, and that's not who he is. You, you come to Jesus and you place yourself at the center of the gospel. And the gospel is an idol that's meant to give you what you want. Jesus, I will repeat this prayer. I will go through this motion. If you would just make things better for me, just give me just a little bit more success. Just give me a little bit easier life. I will go through the motions and you've made Jesus into an idol. You made the gospel into pagan heathenism. You know how you do that? is when your self-righteousness is at the center of the gospel. I will do these good things, and now I've, I've gone to Bible study, I've gone to church, I, I, I'm praying, I'm putting verses on Facebook, I, I'm inviting people to church, I'm doing all of these things, God. Now you have to do what I want. I've backed you in a corner, God. You know what that's called? Pagan heathenism. God doesn't owe you anything because He's the Creator who's given you everything. And the Gospel is to say, oh, I've rebelled against you and yet you've sent your Son to die for my sins and you've raised Him up as a living God who demands worship of all people. I bow before you as the Creator and the only one who can save me. I bow before you as the one who will come and you will crush the idols of Zeus and Hermes, and you will crush the idols that I erect all around my house, that I erect in my life. And there will be a day when only Jesus will fulfill all of these desires of my heart, when the sky is busted open and He will be lifted up as a Creator God who came in flesh, who died for my sins, and who is worshipped by pagan heathens in Lystra. In Indonesia, and pagan heathens who are worshiping here today who repent of such sin. That is who Jesus is. And that is what Paul is preaching here. But notice what happens to Paul. He's stoned for this message. He's left outside of the city. Now, many believe at this point is where Paul writes of entering into the third heaven. Where he was literally, they say dead and he has this dream or he's caught up into the third heaven and many believe that there's some sort of resurrection that goes on here it, it doesn't say that in the text it just simply says he is beat to death and left outside of the city and it had to be a dramatic traumatic moment because they turn and they leave him there he's dead he's gone and the disciples come out, maybe to prepare him for burial or whatever. And they gather around him and what happens? He rose up. And then Paul looks at Barnabas and says, let's go back to Antioch. I'm tired of this. I'm done. I can't take anymore. 
This is over. I'm, I'm burnt out. You know, I do so much for Jesus. Just burnt out. Now, what does he do? He entered the city. <laughs> Let's go back for more. If I can survive this. Looking like Rocky Balboa. He goes into the city, and on the next day, they go back to Derby. And they, or they go to Derby, and they thought he was dead. They, they, they thought he was dead. He'd been beaten so much. And what does he do? He enters the city, and then verse 21, and when he got to Derby, what did he do? They preached the gospel to that city, and they made disciples there. And then they returned to Lystra. Back to Lystra again. Really? And then where do they go? Iconium and Antioch. Do you get what he's doing? He's beaten to death. He goes back to Lystra. And then he says, Barnabas, while we're at it, let's just go back to Iconium too. Paul, they just traveled 100 miles to stone you here. Yeah, let's go back. And then let's go back to Antioch. Paul, the people who threatened to stone you, the people who lied about you, the people who ran you out of the city. Yeah, let's go back there. What is wrong with this man? He kills back to every city where there is significant opposition to preach the gospel. And why does he do it? Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. What is he doing? He's building up the believers left in the city who are probably suffering there. And what is he doing? Hey, I've got to warn you of something. If you believe this message, you're going to suffer. If you enter into this kingdom, the rest of the kingdoms of the world are going to hate you. If you follow Jesus, you've got to take up your cross. Be ready to suffer if you're going to be a part of this kingdom. And when they appointed elders in every one of the churches with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What is Paul plotting? What is he doing here? Why is he going back? I mean, at any time he could have looked at Barnabas and said, let's just travel back over to Antioch. And by the way, with the map up, it would, have, it would have been like 100 miles. Look where Derby is and look where Antioch. They could have just gone right up around the tip there back into Antioch. And what do they do? They go all the way back around. They travel all the way back down to Cyprus. And then they go back to Antioch that way. It took them three years total to make this journey. And it could have been a lot easier. Barnabas, they're going to have a missionary testimony night at Antioch for us. And we're going to get of our testimony about our first missionary journey. We're going to show them pictures and videos. It's going to be great. No, let's spend another year of traveling. <laughs> let's go back to the churches and strengthen these believers. Because Barnabas, if we're suffering out here, they're suffering too. Let's go back and strengthen them in the Lord. And the question here. Paul has gone from being a god on a pedestal to being a man stoned to death and beaten, preaching the gospel, a missionary who is about to die of exhaustion. And that's a question for us. Do we want to be lifted up on a pedestal as a god to be worshipped? Or are we ready to suffer for Jesus? Because if you begin with life, and you begin to think about church life and mission life, wherever you live, and evangelism and serving Jesus, if you begin with yourself at the center, 
You won't plod. You'll give up when it gets hard. You won't persevere. If all of this here today, following Jesus, ministering the gospel is about us, then when it gets hard and it gets difficult, we won't plod. We'll give up. But if Jesus is at the center of it, we will press through. We will suffer. We will sacrifice. Paul would say in Colossians chapter 1, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. To a church, he would say, I'm glad to suffer for you. I'm glad to be spent for you. Now, let's just, that's weird. That's crazy talk. I rejoice when rocks are bouncing off my head. That, that, that's crazy talk. But what does he say here? I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church. What is, what is Paul saying? I rejoice in my sufferings because I know when I'm suffering for the sake of the gospel, I am presenting an adequate picture of Jesus. Jesus who suffered on the cross for me. Jesus who suffered on the cross for you. And so ministry and mission isn't supposed to be easy. It's, it's, it, there's some difficulty that is intrinsic in sharing the gospel with someone that displays the gospel. I will suffer for you. I will love you to the point that, 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 that I, I can't love you anymore even though you hate me. Even though you push me away and alienate me. Why? It's the same thing Jesus did. It's the same way Jesus loved and suffered. Well, after Paul was being back in Antioch for three years, he wrote the book of Galatians to many of these churches. And at the end of Galatians, here's what he says. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The, the being stoned. The blisters on his feet. Think about this. We, we, we read our Bibles and it's so pretty. But if you've ever gone on into any country, or you've ever done this kind of traveling, and you begin to eat the food and you drink the water, I'm sure they were sick at times on boats. I'm sure the smell of the animals that carried their stuff, they got tired of that. Sleeping on rocks. And Paul says, why? These are marks of Jesus. And the picture there is Paul is saying, I'm a slave that's been branded for Jesus. And the marks of suffering I have on my body, they just declare whose I am. Jesus is my master. And it's a flip on the pagan idolatry. Many of these pagans would put marks on their body to declare who their God was. And Paul says, the marks on my body... Bruises on my head, blisters on my feet, stripes on my back. I'm branded for Jesus. I'm branded. I'm tattooed with suffering for Jesus. Everybody knows who I belong to because they see it in my suffering. But if we begin with ourselves at the center, we will not plod. All of church life will be self-worship. I show up here to fulfill myself. I show up here to do for myself. And then when things don't go my way, and it's hard and it's difficult, and, and I'm exhausted, it's about me, I give up. But if I look at this and say, no, this is just a declaration of who my master is. The one who plotted it to Golgotha. We talk about stress in ministry. 
You talk about praying for people to the point of you don't know what to pray anymore. Think about Gethsemane. The one who prayed drops of blood for you. Coming from his poor, the stress of the cross, blood began to trickle down his face. Talk about being burned out. This is a mark, stress, inconvenience, exhaustion. They are marks of Jesus on who we are and what we belong to and what our mission is. But if we begin with the center, with us at the center, it's just pagan idolatry. And yet if the cross is at the center, we'll be plotters for Jesus. Jesus. 